Welcome back. One and all. Welcome back. Glad to have you again. You are so kind. You are just so kind. Because of all the things you could be doing, of all the other people in the world you could be listening to, you have yet again chosen to spend your time with me in the catechism. That's just so kind of you. Welcome back to our podcast, my podcast, I should say, Twice the Lutheran. I'm Pastor Wells. That's Wells with two L's because I'm, you know it, twice the Lutheran. And you can be too. You're in the right place to learn how. As always, you can reach out and contact me, share with me your questions, comments, concerns, podcast at twicethelutheran.org. That's the email, podcast at twicethelutheran.org. As an aside, I also, as I mentioned in the last episode, have a really bare-bones website up twicethelutheran.org. You can check it out. I am not a great writer. I am not a profound thinker. But I was cleaning out my office the other day, found some notes that I had made from somewhere, I don't remember where, about life, about the abortion debate. So I'm posting those notes on the website. You can check those out at your leisure. We continue to work our way through Luther's small catechism. We haven't made it that far in, to be honest. We've made it into the first part of the first commandment. We covered that last episode. If you haven't listened, go back and give it a give it a check out. We're studying the first commandment. This is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. And Martin Luther taught us to ask, what does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Last time we talked about loving God. This time we're going to talk about fear and trust of God. What exactly does that mean? It was Franklin Roosevelt who famously said in his 1933 presidential inaugural speech, he said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. He was obviously referring to a lot of the uh, political, economical, economical? That's a word, right? Maybe it's just economic. The political and economic turmoil that the country was going through in the 30s. Don't be afraid of it, he said. The only thing you have to fear is fear itself because being afraid is bad, is the implication. So stop being afraid, and then the fear goes away. Well, is that really how it works? Is that even true? Is fear the only thing left to be afraid of? It reminds me of what I tell my wife when she's feeling under the weather, when she's feeling sick, I say, honey, you know what I do when I'm feeling sick? I stop feeling sick and start feeling better instead, so that way I don't feel so sick. (laughs) It doesn't really work that way. The only thing left to fear is fear itself. Stop being afraid, and then you won't be afraid. Oh, if only it were that simple. 
the reality is fear does serve a good role, even as regards its application, if you will, to the Christian faith. Fear does play a role here. I'm reading in the catechism, and, and the catechism we're following is a little bit out of order. Uh, the meaning says fear, love, and we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. The catechism kind of covers it in reverse order. That's okay. We can do whatever we want as long as we get to the content. If you're following along, I'm in the uh, Luther's small catechism. By the way, I told you I'd let you know, and I might not have let you know. I am in the evangelical heritage version if you care. That's not important, but if you want to know. I'm on page 48 of the Catechism. Here's what it says here. In his explanation of the first commandment, Luther says that we are to love and trust God above all things. If we love and trust other things more than God, we are making them into false gods. We're going to talk about that trust here in a little bit. In the explanation, he also tells us to fear God above all things. What does that mean? So what role does fear play in our relationship with God? Well, check out a couple of these passages. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Well, who's that? Who are the people who can kill the body but not the soul? Well, that's everybody. I mean, basically anybody in the world could kill your body, right? And that seems terrifying enough, and indeed it is. We want to avoid that. <laughs> Don't be dead, right? So there are those that can kill your body. They are around you all the time, but they cannot kill your soul. That's impossible for them. No matter what a person does to your body, your soul belongs to God. Your soul is protected by God through his word. So don't be afraid of those who can hurt the body because even if they kill your body and you're a Christian, you, your soul goes home to heaven. And on the day of the resurrection, which we'll study one of these days, you're going to get your body back anyways and, and it's going to be undone. That death will be undone and you will be body and soul in heaven. So don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. But listen to what he says next. Listen to what Matthew says next. Rather, fear the one who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Who's that? That's not Satan. It's God. God can do that. That is the law as a curb. We studied that. The law as a curb. Be afraid of that. Fear the one who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's terrifying. That's what God says he'll do. To those who cling to sin and refuse to come to Christ, soul and body in hell. It reminds me of that old saying, uh, uh, hate the sin, love the sinner. And that, that's true enough. I, I don't want to disparage that saying all the way. <laughs> but recognize that 
that sin that we do will also be punished in our bodies. Body and soul, sinners, people, will end up in hell. Praise be to Christ, of course, for the forgiveness that he's given us so that we don't have to worry about that because we trust in Christ. So what's part of your relationship with God? What What's part of fear? What part does fear play in that? There is a healthy amount of being afraid of God. It reminds me of when I was a kid. Love my dad. Loved my dad when I was a kid. But, but if we did something really naughty at home, you know what mom's ultimate you know, power play was, right? Wait till your father gets home. Ooh, that phrase as a child would strike fear into my heart because there is a healthy amount of fear that you have for your dad, and that can be a good thing. But that's not the only role that fear plays because if, if the commandments only, only convince us to be afraid of God, to cower in fear of him, they haven't really helped us along, have they? No. So that's not the only part of fear then that serves in our relationship to God. Listen to a couple other passages. Ephesians 3, Now to him who is able, according to the power that is at work within us, to do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Wow. What is Paul telling us there in Ephesians? He's saying that same God who has that same power to cast your body and soul into hell for all eternity also uses that power to do infinitely more than you could ask or imagine. That's a lot of power. Want to know how I know that's a lot of power? Because I know that I could ask or imagine quite a bit. But no matter what I could ask for and no matter what I could imagine, it still would not be even a hardship for God in his almighty power. Now, granted, he's not saying that he will do everything I ask or everything I imagine, but he can. He can. It's probably good that he doesn't. I'm pretty sure I would not be a good man if God if God did everything that I sometimes in my sinful nature would want to ask him to do. Let's grab just a couple more passages here. Above all, fear the Lord, serve him in truth. This is from 1 Samuel 12. Fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, considering the great things he has done for you. And what is the great thing that he's done for you? Let me tell you. He's rescued your soul. I don't think you'd ever ask for that or ever would have imagined that. Who of us on our best day would ever imagine that God would enter his creation? The creator would enter his creation in order to save it. I would never have imagined that. I would never have asked that, and yet God did it. And now the Bible tells us, bring those things to mind. And then fear him and serve him. 
So here's a, a nice summary statement then, putting all of those passages together. The Catechism says, to fear God doesn't mean simply to be afraid of him. Oh, well, that's good. And that's true. To fear God means to recognize his power and his authority and be filled with great awe and respect. Standing in awe of something seems to be, oh, I don't, how would you say it? It seems to be a disappearing thing on the earth. We don't stand in awe of much of anything anymore. Maybe in our sinful nature, we sometimes like to stand in awe of ourselves. I did a really good job. But it's hard because, you know, of all the seemingly miraculous things that surround us day by day, I mean, the Internet, computers, do you remember when I was a kid, I remember trying to wrap my head around phone calls that you could see people on the screen during the phone call. That just blew my mind, and now that is just that's just a daily thing. I mean, take your choice of apps that will do that for you. So it's almost like day by day we're surrounded by things that otherwise would be almost miraculous, but we sort of like look past them. They don't even register with us. And even if we're impressed by a new piece of technology or something like that, how long does that awe, that feeling of awe really last? Not that long. Not that long. So it's pretty hard to stand in awe. But with God? Stand in awe of the power he has to just speak things into existence. Stand in awe of the power he worked to rescue your mortal soul and give you the promise of glory in heaven. Back to the catechism in that summary statement here on page 49. When our sinful flesh leads us to sin, God wants us to fear the punishment that we deserve because of our sin. Don't let that escape you. There is a healthy role that fear plays in your relationship with God because when you are sinful, when you are disobedient, God does want you to rightly fear what would happen to you. That is a healthy thing for us to wrestle with. But we do not receive punishment, we receive forgiveness. As the cat, I'm reading from the Catechism here again. As we rejoice in the forgiveness of our sins, our fear of God includes appreciation that his power and authority gave us a Savior. Do you see what we do in the Lutheran Church? And this is going to become important because a little bit later in the show here, uh, in this episode, I want to play with you, play, play with you, that... That's not what I meant. <laughs> play for you. I want to play for you a couple of clips. One of um, Russell Brand and have you analyze that. Another of uh, Dennis Prager. I happen to come across these guys. I, Not that I know them from Adam per se, but they, they are the ones that happen to speak to the topic at hand. Notice that in the Christian church then, and in the Lutheran church, for us, it always comes back to Jesus. All the commandments that we're studying, we are always being driven to Jesus Christ for our salvation. And if you don't get to that point in your study, in your sermon, then you're missing it. 
Because if you miss Jesus, you miss the whole thing. So what role does fear play in your relationship with God? Really, there's, there is sort of a, a two-fold role for fear to play. Yes, there's a part of you that should stand in fear of God. Because in his power, what he could do to your soul and your body is terrifying. Forever being tortured in the flames of hell? That's terrifying. But this other part of fear, the other side of the coin, is the awe and the respect you feel towards God because he didn't work that power to condemn you. He worked his power to save you, to send a Savior, Jesus, to rescue you. Now, the Catechism makes reference to Daniel chapter 6. Whenever you see what we call a parenthetical statement, that is, words in between parentheses, I know it sounds super fancy. It makes me sound way smarter when I say the phrase parenthetical statement. Mm, Yes. It's just words in between parentheses. Whenever you see that in the Catechism, it's giving you a summary of a whole lot of verses. So in Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 23, you'll read the story of Daniel. And here's a summary statement. Daniel feared God more than the king's decree because he was willing to die rather than bow down to the king. That is a really good example, which is why God wrote it in the Bible, is an example for us, of Daniel specifically, and any believer in particular, but Daniel specifically, showing how fear of God in the first commandment played its proper role. Anybody you are more afraid of than God is your God. Anybody that you have more awe and respect for than God, that person is your God. So can you see how just in this one category alone, fearing God, you have broken the first commandment? I have broken the first commandment. There are times when I am more afraid of ridicule and rejection than I am of God. (laughs) How sad that we would put our own fear of somebody else or something else ahead of our fear for God. That means we've broken the first commandment because we have more fear for that person or thing than God. But why stop there? Let's get into the other way that we have no doubt broken this commandment. We should fear, love, and trust. Trust. So what does it mean to trust something? Wouldn't you say that if you trust something, you are assuming that that thing will serve for your good, will give you a good thing or a good outcome or a good result? I mean, that finally is what trust means. So if you have trust in a relationship, you're trusting that this person is going to be good for you, is going to give you good things, good advice, uh, uh, good good, uh, moral direction or something like that. If you trust your vehicle... You're saying you trust that you're saying that you you trust your car is not going to let you down it's going to give you a good result in that it'll get you from A to B. If you trust a a, a newspaper or a periodical or a news periodical. Periodical. Do we ever say periodical? 
a newspaper, a magazine. That's what I mean. <laughs> if you, that means you're trusting that given reporter is not lying to you. It's going to give you good information. So what does it mean that when we trust God? Let's go back into the commandments. I'm sorry, into the catechism. Backing up just a little bit, page 48, if you're following along in your own catechism, God has blessed us so we can learn many things. We know more about this complex world than previous generations did. I'm going to pause there. Is that true? I mean, by and large, that's true, but we don't know how much the pre-flood world knew of the world. It's all been buried in the flood. So, okay, let's let's assume that that's by and large true. I won't be too critical of of the compilers of the uh, catechism here. Some of them were my own professors, so I can only be so critical. We develop medicines and invent technology that can do amazing things. But if we trust our human knowledge so much that we believe we don't need God's care, love, forgiveness, then we make gods of our own understanding, our own knowledge, our own technology. I mean, just think about that. If you think that you are going to get a better result from medicine than you will from God taking care of you. Now, don't get me wrong. We're not anti-medicine, okay? God sometimes works his blessings through medicine. But that doesn't mean you don't owe God thanks then, of course, for that medicine. It doesn't mean he doesn't get the credit for that. If we trust our own knowledge... And we think, because I have the knowledge, I don't really need God's care. Then we are making our knowledge our God. Because we're trusting that we will get a better result from ourselves than we will from God. Or a better result from somebody else than we will from God. There again is breaking the commandment. Now when we get into... Like, really specifically, what does this mean? What do you trust God for? We're talking about the the relationship between God the Son and God the Father. When you trust what Jesus says about God, you're, you're trusting God himself. I know it seems a little convoluted. Let's grab some passages. John 5, 23. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And 1 John 2, who is a liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is an antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Ah, okay. Everyone who denies the Son does not have the Father, but the one who confesses the Son has the Father as well. And here's a summary statement then. Many people claim to believe in the God of the Bible, but don't believe that Jesus is true God, which means you're not trusting God. You're not trusting when he says Jesus is the Savior. You're saying that God is not giving you the ultimate good, that he's lying to you somehow. Back to the summary statement, they really believe in a God created by a human imagination. In reality, they're following an idol. So those who deny God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, there is no eternal life there. Anybody who is anti-Trinitarian will be in hell. This includes, by the way, Mormons. Mormons are not Christians. They use the words Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they have changed the meanings. And we'll, maybe we'll talk about that more another day. But to fear, love, and trust in God 
above all things is to trust first and foremost, not only that God takes care of you day by day. That is true. He does. Trust that. Look to God for every good thing. That's part of your trust in God. But really, at the heart of our trust in God is trusting what he says. And when he says Jesus is the Savior, believe him. Believe him. Because if you don't, then you are making something else God ahead of him. So that's what it means to fear to have a healthy amount of fear, but also respect and awe, love to love God more than anything else, and trust, believing that good comes from God, trusting what he says, that he's not lying. Fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Now, how can we know that we are not condemned to hell because we have broken this commandment? Well, the answer to that and to all the other ways we break the other nine commandments is always, of course, found in Jesus Christ. Romans 5.19, just as through the disobedience of one man, the many became sinners. Who's that? Adam in the garden. His disobedience, we are sinners. So also, Romans says, through the obedience of one man, the many will become righteous. And who's the obedience? Who's the man who was obedient? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ kept this commandment. Jesus always feared, loved, and trusted in God above all things. Now, for those of us who are Christians, who trust in Jesus, this commandment then serves as a guide. How should you live your life in the light of this commandment? Jesus tells you, Matthew 22, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. There's, the, there's your first commandment right there. How about Psalm 73, 25 and 26? Who else is there for me in heaven? And besides you, I desire no one else on earth. Meaning, I love you, God, more than anything else on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail. I'm going to die someday. But God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. And a summary statement here from Genesis chapter 22. Abraham so feared, loved, and trusted in God that he was willing to offer his son Isaac. Another summary statement, 1 Samuel 17. David, remember when David uh, goes into battle, Goliath, David trusted that God would give him the victory. David was trusting in God above all else. And finally, last passage for us for now, 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves under God's powerful hand so that he may lift you up at the appointed time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Do you trust that? Do you trust that everything will be okay in the end? Do you trust that God is powerful enough to take care of all your anxieties and everything you worry about? Then to the extent that you trust God more than you trust yourself, let him deal with your anxieties. Let him deal with your worries. Because he cares for you. That's a guide for you. For those of you who love Jesus Christ, you are invited. Put all your anxieties on him. First commandment, let him be God. Let him deal with them. Everything will be okay. 
trust in that. So there you have it, the the first commandment, fear, love, and trust in God above all things. But before we part ways for yet another sad week, six days before you hear from me again, you'll survive. I will too. Before we part ways, I promise you just a couple of sound clips. I did my best to record them. I'm a brand new podcaster. I don't know what I'm doing. You know how long it took me to figure out how to get sound clips into this podcast to begin with? So you know what? You're welcome. This is how much I love you. This is how much I care for you. I do things for you like this. I figured out how to get sound bites in here. Now, they're not perfectly recorded. So the first sound bite that I want to give you is um, Russell Brand. I don't know if you know Russell Brand. I don't really know him that much. I think I saw one movie with him back in the day, uh, Get Him to the Greek, I think was the name of that movie. It was just a, such a dumb movie. But I, I am entertained by Russell Brand's accent and his voice. He just cracks me up. I don't know why, just the way he talks. And if you haven't caught his podcast, I think he does like a YouTube show or something. Every now and then I'll grab some clips from there. I really appreciate the questions he asks, the challenging of the status quo, the the inviting he does into discovery. Anyways, uh, this is a um, an interview that Russell Brand did with, you know, if I could remember that guy's name, um, is it John Stewart, I think? I think that's who he did it with. Anyways, I'm going to play it. Listen carefully. See if you like what he says about the commandment, the the Ten Commandments or not. I'm going to click play. Listen carefully. Ten Commandments. Most of them have nothing to do with what we would call ethics or morality. The top four are just about God being jealous. I've really? got an interesting perspective once on the that's Ten Commandments. If If you consider them instead of edicts, you know, and I know that the name commandment suggests this. <laughs> I've just commanded that you do that. But if you ignore that, and like, what, how I like to look at it is, uh, if you consider when you are enlightened, you will not steal, you will not kill. And as for the point of uh, worship no other gods than me, all of us engage in idolatry. What I believe the point that is being made is, if you do not find God, if you do not find your own God, which could be love, which could be America, which could be nature, which could be abundant and limitless things, if you do not find that, then everything is potentially God. Your lust suddenly is God. Your desire for entertainment is your God. Greed is your God. You shall worship no other gods than me. Interesting, huh? By the way, while you were listening, I looked it up. Bill Maher. That's Bill Maher. Maybe you recognized his voice. Uh, the uh, the I, th- I think he's maybe professes to be an atheist. I don't know. Bill Maher does not have a high respect for the Ten Commandments. Obviously, he sort of kind of sarcastically says, well, they're like the first four are just God being jealous. Well, what's interesting about Russell Brand is I don't think he's too far off base when he's when he says oh, you are all going to end up worshiping something. I mean, he's almost echoing what the what the scriptures say: the fool in his heart says there's no god. So Russell Brand sort of is saying that that's not really a possibility. Everyone is like pre-wired to worship, and so you're going to find your god. And now, of course, where he breaks down is he he totally he totally whiffs on who the real god is. 
So he says, well, just find your God, whatever it's going to be, and worship that, because otherwise anything can become your God. And he kind of, he kind of hints that, yeah, some things are better gods than others. So at least that's maybe to his credit a little bit. But, yeah, he does whiff on, on who, who the true God is. But I thought that was a pretty interesting insight. You will worship something. So it is well worth your time to be here. I told you it wouldn't waste your time. Because this is one of the places where you can hear about the true God, who he is, what he wants, what he's like, what he's done. The other place, of course, is at church. (laughs) At least if you're at a church that's telling you that truth of God's word, as it should. By the way, if you don't have a church, give me a call. Reach out to me. I I will bring you to my church. St. Mark's in Watertown, you are always welcome to come. We will always give you the truth of God's word. All right. Um, you know, I kind of debate on this next one. Dennis Prager, um, he just popped up. The only reason I grab him is because he's got a good following, and every now and then I see he's doing this this uh, Old Testament thing with a bunch of other um, politically conservative guys. Fine, whatever. You don't even have to be conservative to like this guy. But I want you to listen critically to where he goes with the commandments. As he's talking about the first commandment, there's a little bit of a longer clip, so I'm probably going to interrupt him every now and then and and give some running commentary here. But this is important for us as Christians to be aware of what's out here. Now, I, I told you that for the Lutheran Church and for Christians in general, every commandment drives back to Jesus Christ. At least that's how it should be. Notice that this is not what Dennis Prager is going to do. He drives the commandments back to like a like a patriotic nationalistic application. Okay, I'm not saying there's no parallels or no fair applications to be made there, but that is not at the heart of the commandments. Let's listen to what he says on the on the first commandment here. Oops. What is the first? Here we go. Of the 10 commandments. It might seem like an odd question, but it's not. Jews and Christians give different answers. The reason is that what we know as the Ten Commandments is, in the original Hebrew, the Ten Statements. All right, you know that already, the Ten Statements. Why do you know that already? Because you hang out with me. Because you're already turning into twice the Lutheran. All right, let's, let's press on. And since the Hebrew is the original, we begin with the first statement, which all religions agree is... I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. This statement is so important that none of the other commandments make sense without it. First, it asserts that God is giving these commandments, not Moses and not any other human being. Second, God is the one who delivered you from slavery. Again, no human being did this, not even Moses. All right, he's not altogether wrong there. Even we would say a sin against any of the commandments is always at the heart, a sin against the first commandment, because any sin has you putting yourself as God over something or someone else, over God. So he's not altogether wrong there. These commandments come from God. Therefore, you have an obligation to me, God. And what is that obligation? that you live by the following nine commandments. Again, he's not totally wrong there. We've already talked about that. We have an obligation. We are answerable to God. 
This is the beginning of what is known as ethical monotheism. All right, ethical monotheism. You can already see where Dennis Prager is going to start going with the commandments. These are ethical rules to live by. Again, he's not wrong. But is that really at the heart of the Ten Commandments? The greatest world-changing innovation of the Hebrew Bible. It means two things. Ethical monotheism means that the one God, that's monotheism, is the source of ethics, of morality. Morality, an objective code of right and wrong, does not emanate from human opinion. It emanates from God and therefore transcends human opinion. Again, not wrong. Objective truth. This is true whether you believe it or not. It is not man-made. It is God-given. The other meaning of ethical monotheism is that what God most wants from us is that we treat other human beings morally. Hmm. Hmm. I desire all people to come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. What does God want from you? Well, God wants to serve you. He wants to take away your sins and has done so in Jesus Christ. Now, does the way you treat people matter to God? Yes, of course that is true. None of the Ten Commandments concern what humans must do, quote-unquote, for God. Pre-Ten Commandments religions all believe that people must do a lot for their gods. For example, feed them and even sacrifice people to them. But now, thanks to the Ten Commandments, mankind learned that what God wants is that we be good to our fellow human beings. Even the commandments concerning not having false gods and not carrying God's name in vain are ultimately about morality. The thing we can do for God is to treat all his other children decently. Every parent can relate to this. Parents, or at least healthy parents, have indescribable joy when they see their children act lovingly toward one another and indescribable pain when they see their children hurt one another. We haven't studied it yet. We will. We will study it. But at the heart of what Dennis Prager is saying here, he's kind of wrestling with what is a truly good work? What's a good thing that makes God happy? What are the things that we can do that make him smile? Dennis Prager says, yes, the the contents that make God smile, the things that make God smile are in the Ten Commandments. And he's right. He's right. This is a great summary. But what's he missing? You haven't heard anything about Christ yet. And here's a spoiler alert, by the way. You're not going to hear anything about Jesus. The Bible teaches us that a truly good work are those things that we do that flow from faith in Jesus Christ first and then are in accord with the Scriptures, something God tells us to do in the Scriptures. Dennis is letting it hang out there that anybody can please God by the way they behave. And that's just strictly speaking not true. Truly God-pleasing behavior comes first and foremost from faith and then is in accord with the Ten Commandments. So to God, who is likened to our Father in heaven, cares most about how we treat other human beings, all of whom are his children. 
The third critical teaching of the first statement, I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, is the importance and the meaning of freedom. And here you are seeing where, where he's making his turn now toward uh, a patriotic, nationalistic application. Uh, by the way, you'll see that all over uh, Charlton Heston's uh, movie, The Ten Commandments. What's really at the heart of there? Being released from slavery into political freedom. Note that God is not saying in this introduction to the Ten Commandments that he created the world. It surely would have made a lot of sense for God to introduce the Ten Commandments with this statement. That is an interesting observation that should immediately give even Mr. Prager a moment's pause. How interesting. You're right. He doesn't say, I created the world. It would have made sense, but that's not what he said. At the very beginning, what does he say? I let you out of slavery in Egypt. Which means, who is he talking to? Who's God talking to? He's talking to the Jews. We covered this in the last episode. Go back and listen to that. But that that whole point sort of slips right by this whole talk by Mr. Prager. I am the Lord your God who created the world. That is, after all, pretty impressive and would make sense. I created the world. You better listen to me. But no. The one thing God declares is that he took the children of Israel out of slavery and into freedom. That's how much God hates slavery and how important God considers freedom. Again, not totally wrong. But he's talking specifically to the Jews. Is there a way in which you could say that God has released you from slavery? Mr. Prager's answer would be, well, sure, I live in a country where there is no slavery anymore. Okay. But maybe there's something deeper here. <laughs> Do you see where I'm going? Slavery to sin? How did God set you free from that? Jesus Christ and his blood shed for you? Do you see how for us the commandments find their center in Jesus? Mr. Prager's going to miss that point. The founders of America based their entire view of America on this belief that God wants us to be free. That is why the most iconic symbol of the American Revolution, the Liberty Bell, has only one sentence inscribed on it. A verse from the Hebrew Bible, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. But there is one other equally important lesson about freedom imparted by the opening statement of the Ten Commandments. What freedom means. The giver of the Ten Commandments is in effect saying, I took you out of slavery and into freedom. And these Ten Commandments are the way to make a free society. You cannot be a free people if you do whatever you want. That also is true, right? God does not set us free in Jesus' blood for a life of doing whatever we want. He sets us free for a life of service to him and others. Freedom comes from moral self-control. There is no other way to achieve it. Okay, sure. Freedom comes from moral self-control, politically speaking. But what about freedom from sin? Where does that come from? Moral self-control? No. 
That comes from Jesus Christ in him alone, freedom from sin. I think that probably that's enough, huh? I wanted you to have a practical exercise to be able to apply what we have learned in our study of the first commandment, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. The commandments don't point you to heaven in the sense of giving you a list of things to do to get there. The commandments point you to your Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, the first commandment is so-called because it is foundational. Foundational, sure, to the rest of the Ten Commandments. Foundational, sure, to our life of moral living. But foundational, finally, to our eternal salvation. You have a God, the real God, the only God. And what you need to know about that God is what he's done for you. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to rescue you. Friends, now you know more about the first commandment that you did before. I, of course, didn't cover everything yet. So you should reach out and tell me what you want to cover on this topic before we move on. Podcast at twicethelutheran.org. Reach out to me, podcast at twicethelutheran.org. Thank you, you handsome people, once again. See you on the next one.